0: Welcome to the Future Financial Planners podcast, brought to you by the Financial Planning Association of Australia. Whether you're a student, a graduate or an early career advisor, join us as we dive into the ins and outs of becoming a financial planner. I'm your host Azaria Bell, bringing you tips from the experts on career strategy, sanity and success. Today's episode is focused on the pathway to becoming a financial planner. I'll be joined by Amelia Konstantinidis from the Financial Advisor Standards and Ethics Authority, also known as FASEA. We'll be discussing everything from choosing an appropriate study path, how previous experience and education may assist you, the professional year, the financial advisor exam, and much more. We've got a lot of content to dive into in this episode, so let's get right into it. Hey Amelia, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh hi Zaria, it's a real pleasure to be here, thank you. So for those listening who haven't had the chance to meet you yet or hear you on one of your webinars, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, Uh, my
1: name is Amelia Constantinidis and I'm the Standards Director at FASEA, so I'm responsible for I guess the end-to-end design, development and implementation of all standards uh,
0: for FASIA. Perfect. You're exactly who we want to be talking to because uh, over the last few years, the things we need to do to become a qualified financial planner has definitely increased, which is excellent because it ensures that our clients are really going to be taken care of. Um, But for many of us, and myself included, we're coming into this industry just as or right after all these changes are coming into place. Um, And it can be really hard to keep track of everything we need to do. So I guess the best place to start our conversation today would be looking at degree requirements. So for those who aren't sure, if we're looking to undertake studies in financial planning, where do we start? Look, probably the
1: best place to start is our website. Um, we've got a lot of information on the website. Um, but um, if I can just, I guess, uh, highlight what the key re- requirements are that might be useful for everybody. Um, so, you know, way back, uh, you know, following a number of reviews, the government introduced the professional standards. They're in, in force for uh, everyone but more importantly, for new entrants, um, since January 2019, um, they wanted to lift the education and ethical standards for all-in financial advice and and make it more like a profession. So for new entrants, it's really, uh, they need to have an approved degree. And we've got all the details of the degrees that we have approved on our website. There's over 130 degrees that have been uh, approved and over 24 uh, different providers or higher education providers. So there's lots of choice um, and uh, probably the best place to start, as I said, is our website.
0: So what does it mean to have an approved degree? What constitutes an approved degree?
1: Yeah, great question. So an approved degree is one that, um, so our accreditation team has done a lot of work to work out what the uh, relevant curriculum is for someone that is going to be a general financial advisor, just like in every other profession where you've got a, a generalist or a GP. Um, so it covers all of the relevant areas that are required uh, in financial advice. So that, that would be, you know, superannuation, insurance, uh, uh, self-managed super, uh, shares, all of the key sort of requirements that a financial advisor should be considering when they're talking to a retail client. So, the team actually uh, went out to all higher ed providers, um, so all universities and others that are not universities that are classified as higher ed providers, and actually asked them to uh, apply to have their courses approved. So, the team looked at each of the courses based on this curriculum um, and also a number of other standards that we expect of courses uh, that are being delivered in this space. So, once they reviewed those, they got them, uh, they determined whether they were approved and they were added to our um, approved list.
0: Excellent. Okay, so that's really good to know. So, if I, for example, have a degree, maybe I did a commerce degree a couple of years back and I majored in accounting and finance, does that mean that might not necessarily be an approved degree?
1: That, that's correct, Azaria. So that would be classified as a relevant degree. So it's not that it's, um, it, it's you know, irrelevant completely, because there might be some subjects in there that um, you covered that are relevant. And, and an example of those would be taxation or commercial law. That is part of our uh, curriculum. So what you would then need to do is if you've completed a bachelor degree, then you would likely be eligible to enter to do a graduate diploma. We've got um, a significant number of graduate diplomas that have been approved on our uh, list. Uh, The higher ed provider would have a look at what you've previously done and also take in any uh, work experience that you may have, um into the into the equation and decide whether they are willing to actually provide you with some credits so a graduate diploma is eight subjects uh, that are needing to be done um, and that could reduce depending on what you've done and what uh, recognition of prior learning that the higher education provider may provide
0: Excellent. So that means I won't have to redo a whole bachelor's. There's just maybe a few extra courses through a diploma or something that I might need to do to top up um, those education requirements. That's right. You wouldn't need to
1: redo 24 subjects of a bachelor. You would only be required to do a maximum of eight, which it would be a postgraduate degree.
0: I know for myself when I was going through university I finished my degree in commerce majoring in financial planning Um, and at the time there wasn't a ethics component to that course so that meant that after my studies were completed I had to just go back and do one course in ethics and I think that's what you guys refer to as a bridging course is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right, Azaria. So there is a number of degrees on our approved list um, that for people that completed them well before 2019. So if anyone has undertaken a degree prior to that, uh, they will be required to actually uh, undertake the ethics bridging course. And the main reason for that is that the ethics bridging or the ethics course. Um, is it covers all of the new legislated code of ethics that um, is in force since 2020. Um, So it's very new content that wouldn't have been in any other ethics uh, subject that you may have completed as part of your degree.
0: Okay, that's really good to know. So if someone's listening and they might be a bit confused about what education they have and where that might fit, do they need to reach out to someone directly or is there an online tool that they can use? So there is an online tool, there is the Education Pathways
1: tool that is on our website, but for new entrants, it would really um, highlight to them that they either have an approved degree and they can see whether their degree is approved um, with the tool, because all the approved courses are uh, loaded into the tool, or it will tell them that they'll need to complete a graduate diploma. And then the best thing for them to do would be to go and speak to one of the providers that's on our website their preferred provider, and have a chat to them to see whether they are eligible for any credits or anything like that. And failing that, if um, we, we do have an inquiries uh, inbox that, um, you know, people can actually send emails to and we'd be happy to help and answer any questions. I, I do that regularly for new entrants and it's great to see that there are many actually considering, uh, you know, financial advice as a profession, which is great.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So if someone's got maybe a bit of a more complicated situation, maybe they have uh, overseas qualifications or some work experience, um, you'd say that it's probably worth heading to that email.
1: Yes, that's right. So if someone's got foreign qualifications, it, depending on what they've done and when they've done it, um, as new entrants, they would still be required to have an approved degree. But if they need to use their foreign qualification uh to give them credits or anything like that, it needs to be approved by FASEA. So we've got a foreign qualification uh, page on our website as well, which provides um, some really good information.
0: Excellent. We'll leave the link to that one in the show notes for anyone who might need that resource. So another thing we'll be talking about on the show in quite a bit of depth is the professional year. Um, So without going into too much detail at risk of repetition, I do have a couple of questions about the professional year. And I guess the first one is why was the professional year introduced? Yeah,
1: it's great question. And, um, you know, I think as part of the government's intent intent to increase education and ethical standards for financial advisors, they did set the requirement for all new entrants to complete a professional year. Now, th- this is consistent to every other profession, whether it be law, accounting, med- medicine, engineering, they all have a professional year. And, and you know, it varies in, in length. Um, you know, some are 12 months, some are 18 months, some are three years. So it does vary. So it it, it is part of, it, you know, it, it is one of the pillars, I guess, in terms of a profession and entering a profession. So the intent of the professional year is really to develop practical experience under supervision um, and it is about um, all of the skills that are required to become a generalist financial advisor.
0: So the way I thought of it when I started the professional year was I actually saw it as a really positive thing because it's kind of like having a grad year for financial planning. Like I look to my friends at university who went on to study finance, for example, and they'll do a graduate year where they try different things, they have different rotations and that's kind of how the professional year uh, is set up, which I really enjoy. So could you just give us an overview of what's involved in the professional year? Yeah, great. And um, as I said, it's a supervised uh, year. It is a minimum
1: of 12 months of work and training. Um, the in intention is for the new entrant to become a well-rounded generalist financial advisor. And it's similar, um, you know, to any other profession, as I said, that in terms of becoming a GP before you decide what you want to specialise. And Azaria, as you just mentioned, in any grad program you sort of try all the aspects and then you become a finan- become the sort of uh, generalist or qualified, if you like. Um, so the PY standard is split into four quarters Um, with the new entrant starting with observing a senior and uh, advisor or their supervisor and the ability for them to really grasp all of the key requirements and put into practice what they would have learnt in their degree. So if you think of the degree providing you the skills and the knowledge around, let's say, superannuation or insurance or client engagement, it's how you actually um, put those into practice. So that's a key requirement. So it starts with the observation um, and supporting the uh, supervisor or senior advisors with a lot of the back office requirements. So, you know, preparing SOAs, file client file notes, all of the compliance requirements as well. So they become really versed in all of the regulatory requirements. Um, as they're working through that. And it moves um, progressively through, once they've passed the exam, uh, moves into quarter three, where they become a little bit more uh, able to actually interact with clients on their own, um, still in a supervised uh, environment, but um, they have a little bit more uh, leeway to actually do things on their own and become a lot more, uh, you know, ready as a financial advisor as they go as they work towards the end of the professional year.
0: Awesome. So you're not getting just thrown in the deep end, putting in with clients straight away. You're kind of working up your skills and your knowledge over that year. Yeah, and
1: I, I sort of encourage uh, new entrants when I speak to them to, you know, be that sponge, especially in the first few quarters, to ask all the questions you need um, to be well-rounded and, and become that financial advisor that you really want to uh, to become and be passionate about
0: yeah for sure. And I think one of the things I maybe misinterpreted when I started the professional year because I'm currently going through it now, and I fully expected to have this over and done with in twelve months' time. But based on how I'm going now, I really actually enjoy taking my time, not rushing the professional year, um, and just making sure I'm learning as much as I can. So are you finding that the people that are currently going through the professional year, they're not necessarily sticking to exactly twelve months?
1: Yeah, I think the professional year has been structured in a way that makes it flexible for uh, for the individual. So the key thing is for the individual and the supervisor to work through what's right for them, what they need to learn and what pace they like to learn in. Um, and so, you know, some people do finish it within the 12 months or at the 12 months. Some people uh, do go longer and, you know, some of the... Um, supervisors that I've spoken to, they sort of said they, they like a sort of 18-month period, um, seems to be, you know, uh, a sort of uh, normal one. But there are definitely many that have completed it in the 12 months um, and have moved on. Now, I'd probably say and probably something that we should cover is, um, it, you know, someone that might definitely have completed in the 12-month period is someone that's been a career changer. So, you know, someone that's just finished school, gone to uni, just come out of uni and it's their first job, they might take a little bit longer because, you know, they don't have that experience. But someone that's changing careers would have some experience and so that would be taken into consideration.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And you mentioned students coming out of uni, starting their job and starting their professional year. I know this has changed in the last couple of years. When exactly can you start your professional year?
1: Yeah, so you can. Um, so, look, I, ideally for someone that is just uh, completing uh, their bachelor degree, um, it is ideal to start the professional year when you've got a lot of the knowledge areas complete. So, I, you know, I wouldn't start it at the very beginning of your bachelor degree because you really don't have any sort of base knowledge uh, to be able to have your practical experience. Mm. So what we recommend is that you can start it um, if you haven't completed your degree, but it you should be in your final stages of the degree. Um, the final last few subjects is probably uh, ideal and you're probably undertaking those as well. So you've still got that knowledge. So you've got a lot of the base level of knowledge um, and you can start uh, the uh, PY. But but you need to note that you can't actually sit the exam until you've actually completed um, the degree. So that might mean that Quarter one and quarter two might take a lot longer because uh, you haven't actually completed the degree. So, you know, you need that needs to all be weighed up with your supervisor and licensee.
0: For sure. Now, one thing that students are very familiar with is exams, which is great. Um, As I understand, there is a broad exam that all of us will have to complete before meeting with clients as a financial planner. So could you give us a little overview of the financial advisor exam and what's included in that?
1: Yeah, great. And um, look, I think as you said, uh, new entrants will definitely be very uh, used to exams, and they would have done many exams in the in the specific uh, knowledge areas. Uh, what the financial advisor exam uh, is uh, intending to do is to to assess um, the. Knowledge at a practical level. So it's, um, it's testing the application of the knowledge that you would have received in your degree. And that's why it's critical f- to have uh, some practical experience before you actually uh, sit the exam. So the three basic areas that the exam is assessing is the legal and regulatory requirements that uh, relevant providers need to comply with when providing financial advice of any type. Um, how financial advice should be constructed and how to provide financial advice in an ethical manner. Uh, It uses, um, so a lot of the questions are based off client scenarios or scenarios that are uh, designed uh, with with financial advice in mind. It might be different types of financial advice scenarios across all the different sort of areas of advice Um, and the questions are asking your knowledge in applying, you know, the legal requirements, the ethical obligations and constructing advice.
0: So if someone's listening and perhaps they live rurally and they're a bit concerned about how they're going to get to a venue that offers the exam, um, what could they think about as an alternative?
1: So the, the exam is actually available remotely. Um, And I'm sure um, many of the new entrants, as they've been undertaking their degrees or subjects over the last year, are well accustomed to um, the proctoring, the online proctoring environment. um, And uh, the exam also uses the same sort of uh, technology. So they can um, undertake the exam remotely. And we have many people that have actually undertaken the exam remotely. However, it is important to ensure your technology is set up correctly uh, for uh, for that, so it can be as effective and uh, as smooth as possible.
0: For sure. Now I recently did the exam, yet to get my results, so fingers crossed. Um, But one thing I found really helpful was the amount of resources that were actually out there to prepare for the exam. So could you go through with us what some of those resources might be? We
1: provide a a lot of resources and the first um, document that everyone should actually review is the exam preparation guide. Uh, And that lists the curriculum, Um, that's actually in the exam or that the exam assesses and new entrants would be very familiar with learning outcomes and curriculum. Um, It provides a a reading list of uh, suggested reading that you should be across uh, to help prepare for the exam and uh, all questions that are in the exam are actually linked to the curriculum and or the reading list so um, really encourage you to focus on that first. We also provide um, a practice questions, and there's over 100 practice questions that you can use. Some of those are retired uh, exam questions. Um, So, you know, a good source would be to actually use uh, the resources there. And um, use the practice exam and, uh, you know, time yourself three hours and and 15 minutes or three hours and a half uh, to sort of give you that exam environment. And um, obviously we're providing a number of webinars to the end of this year. Uh, uh, pre-exam webinars to help you prepare and uh, for those that are unfortunately don't make it through we also provide them with uh, a post-exam webinar that helps them understand some of the underperforming areas.
0: That's actually a really good point to touch on because I'm sure there would be a lot of nerves out there about what if I don't pass the exam does that mean that my chances of becoming a financial planner have been squashed Um, what is the process there?
1: So once uh, someone sits the exam, if they are unfortunate and don't make it through uh, this sitting, they will receive feedback uh, that's individual to them in terms of the areas that they underperformed in. Um, We also provide uh, broader areas that the whole uh, cohort of of that sitting actually underperformed in as well. So the combination of the two is a really good source for them to actually consider for their um, next sitting and their exam a study guide as their own study uh, plan, um, so that's that's really important. You can set the exam uh, multiple times to the end of the year, um, and uh, you know there will be opportunities, obviously next year, uh, to also set the exam. So um, it, it's up to your supervisor and licensee as to um, you know what. Support they might be able to provide you as well um, during this time, but what I can say is those that have been taking their undertaking their PY and have sat the exam um, and have been unfortunate. Um, When I've spoken to a number of them, the primary reason I would say is because they don't have enough practical experience. So they weren't able to apply their knowledge to the case study that was provided or the scenario that was provided because they do lack that practical experience. So that's why we recommend that the exam isn't undertaken until there's at least, um, you know, sort of the first two quarters complete uh, for someone that's brand new into, into the industry. So you've got that practical experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that really highlights the value of getting that practical experience and not rushing the process. Because I think back to when I started my degree, um, all my peers were had the similar mindset of graduating your degree and becoming a financial planner straight away. Now, that always kind of terrified me as a concept because you're really, um, people are really entrusting you with their money and they want to make sure that they've got someone who's experienced and knows what they're doing. So in light of that, and in light of all the information we've talked about today, what would you say the average time is to become a financial planner?
1: Yeah, as I said, you know, obviously um, undertaking the degree um, takes, depending on what degree can take a couple of years or three years for a bachelor. Um, the PY usually takes 12, probably 18 months for someone that's brand new, I'd say is what I'm, what I'm hearing from the industry. Um, and then, um, you, and then you would become a financial advisor from that point on, depending on your licensee, they might, um, think about, um, you know, how that, how you're authorized in those early, uh, days. Um, but yeah, it does vary. So, but you are qualified at the end of completing your professional year.
0: Awesome. Well, I think that sums up pretty much all of the questions I had for you today, Amelia. Do you have any words of wisdom or words of encouragement for people who are coming into the industry and are maybe just about to undergo um, all of these requirements?
1: Yeah, no, look, I think there's a lot of change going on in financial advice. And uh, you know, from my perspective, I think it's all very positive change. Um, there's many, many people actually really uh, encouraged uh, about uh, financial advice becoming a profession, um, and that's, uh, you know, that's really encouraging. And for me, I've seen lots of inquiries and spoken to, to many, uh, you know, potential new entrants. Um, it's really encouraging that we've got, uh, I think, about 1,200 uh, individuals undertaking their bachelor approved degrees. Uh, So that's really encouraging in terms of there's some great new entrants potentially coming through. So yes, there's a lot of change, but it's a really exciting time for financial advice as a profession. So yeah,
0: best of luck. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Amelia. really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Azaria. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Future Financial Planners podcast, brought to you by the Financial Planning Association of Australia. For great resources and a free student membership, find us at fba.com.au. Good advice makes for great futures.